This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and unfortunately, all we can talk about is long-term care and the deadly trajectory that we are on. Let me focus a moment on one long-term care operator here in Ontario. As you heard in Jeremy's news, uh, seven residents have died at a Scarborough, Ontario long-term care home, the Rockcliffe Care Community, while 136 other residents, that's 136 out of 204, and 66 staff members have tested positive. It's owned by Sienna Senior Living, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because this company owns five of the 20 homes that were hardest hit during the first wave. Uh, It had the highest numbers of deaths in the first wave, and three of its homes were taken over by the province in the first wave. It also is the subject of three class action suits. So what does it take to be sanctioned as a bad actor, I am asking that question. As you also heard in Jeremy's news, 107 long-term care homes in total are in outbreak in this province. And there's even a possibility that our government will be investigated for violating the human rights of people in long-term care. That's what happened in Belgium. 61% of their deaths in the first wave were in long-term care. Here, it was 80, 80%. So uh, who knows where this is going? And I think the big question is, is there anything we can still do to avoid this headlong drive to disaster? And what of the campaign to fire Marilee Fullerton? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to bring in our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hey, guys, how are you? Hello, Hello Libby. Good morning, Libby. Okay, let us start with Bill. Uh, Bill, how is the campaign going? The campaign is going well, I'm sorry to say. I'm sorry to say because we shouldn't even have to have this campaign. Uh, we have over 800 signatures to the petition already it has only been going uh, a few few days uh we're getting literally scores and scores of very strong comments both on the petition and on our uh, facebook uh, page and uh, we're getting everything that uh, i guess we hoped we would get except no reaction from the government at all hmm uh Interesting. Um, David, where do you think we're at? I mean, one of the the things I'm trying to wrap my head around 
we knew this was coming. We heard the premier so many times and speaking from the heart. He was going to do everything. And now it, it's uh, it's back. It's deja vu all over again. I think the premier has been uh, trapped, uh, if I may say so, between two worlds, one which is quite reasonable and one which is uh, uh, a kind of emergency situation that hasn't been responded to that way. So when the, if you can remind our listeners and our own team here, because we've talked about it every week, when this first hit, we said, oh my God, this has revealed years of neglect predating Ford. The homes were in no position to deal with this. There were staff levels. The inspections were loose. There's all kinds of problems. And those problems will require time and money to fix. So nobody was saying you can wave your magic wand and create a couple hundred new buildings that, or refurbish the buildings that are there. Everything took time. And those plans are quite reasonable. And they've been announced, and they're all, they all make sense. The trouble is the house is on fire, and we need Band-Aids. We need emergency action that might not be sustainable and might not be typical of what the long-term solution would be. Uh, by contrast, in Quebec last summer, the premier faced with the scandalous, even more, much worse than Ontario, uh, outbreaks in their homes, um, launched an emergency plan to hire 10,000 workers. There was going to be a crash course, I think 60 or 90 days of training. They had 55,000 applicants for those positions. So they were taking some unusual steps uh, in the face of a horrendous, equally horrendous record in their own province, and we've seen no equivalent here, and I think that's where the problem is. Well, yeah, and I think one of the keys with that move in Quebec, in addition to promising a very good wage for those jobs, they, they called them something other than personal uh, uh, support workers, they called them orderlies, they paid for the training, which is yes, a barrier, and they did it so that th- these people were in place. And when I look at this, I think, well, it's too late for that, and the, the province has some uh, plan for assistance is people who lost their jobs in hospitality to work in long-term care. Really? They're going to want to do that? And and they don't know anything about how to handle the very compromised residents. Peter, what do you think? Well, you know, Livy, I think the key uh, with the Quebec strategy, which you mentioned, is money. You know, they, they're paying for the training and they're offering more money, and that will turn out bodies, you know. Um, just saying, um, you know, we we support our frontline workers and sort of hoping that they'll people will respond out of sense of duty. It's probably not going to happen unless you put some money on the table. And um, I, you know, they, there is money on the table, but I I don't know what it's being used for right now. Uh, it it seems to be more long term rather than short term emergency hiring. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it's almost hard to keep track of the vicissitudes, but, but there was a special pandemic pay. I think, I, I think it's not in force anymore. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, you know, of an extra three or four dollars an hour. And yes, they finally moved to prohibit people from working in more than one home. But we see this situation where, where these workers don't even have benefits. I mean, and and I mean, there was time to do this. I'm sorry, there was time to do this. So, uh, I mean, just trying to be a little constructive here. What 
do you think we could do now, Bill? I mean, and, and well, uh, well, yeah, well, and by the way, not only was there their time, but even in their plans now that were announced for improving staffing, they're talking about 2024, 2025. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, the, the uh, and, and there's no plan in place uh, uh, I, I know you spoke to the uh, to the uh, to the minister, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the finance minister. Oh, the finance and, minister. And he, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 he said they hadn't had time yet to put together a, a plan and, and a budget. Well, there is no time. This is an emergency, and they've had eight months uh, to uh, to do it. The other thing, though, is that uh, it's really hard to to see how they can stop the, the uh, COVID from getting into long-term care homes uh, when they aren't able to smother the, the flare-ups that are in the, in the city, uh, city right now, uh, that unless we're able to control, control all of it, uh, long-term care homes are going to be the first and the worst to be hit. Remember, we still have uh, uh, double and triple rooms in many of these uh, older uh, facilities. Um, we we know more about uh, COVID now, but we're not doing anything to change to change the, the conditions that were there eight months ago. Well, exactly, and and I'm kind of curious. Um, we've seen this report from Amnesty International in Belgium, and they are citing. Uh, Belgium for violating the human rights of residents of nursing homes. And one of the keys there is that they were not allowed to go to hospitals to be treated. And they're saying because of that, a lot of them died prematurely. And we saw much of the same here. It was a real patchwork. People from some places were sent to hospital. Others, again, they were not allowed to go to the hospitals. They died in their nursing homes. is 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 that something that is on your radar, David? Well, it's very it's very much because I'm thinking back to the uh, Royal Society report, which we discussed several weeks ago about um, the reason that the problem existed in the first place was sort of an unspoken ageism on the part of the the policymakers, and that does speak to issues of human rights and not just situational, uh, you know, maladministration or incompetence, which is very serious, but not necessarily, you know, affecting deliberately uh, uh, infringing on human rights. But if there is ageism, if there is this kind of attitude, and bear in mind that the nursing home population without COVID is older, is averaging in the 80s, most of them have comorbidities, so they are a population that does not have, under the best of circumstances, a long lifespan ahead of them. And it's all too easy to say, well, you know, if this doesn't get them, something else will. Maybe you don't put that in writing, you know, but maybe that's your your underlying attitude. And it is a very serious uh, issue of ageism and of how we treat uh, older people who are who are at risk uh, and are all too readily abandoned, it seems, by the system. Hmm. Bill, uh, you know, interesting. Uh, the the other thing that's happening is that we have healthcare professionals campaigning for for much stricter measures because uh, one of the things that the authorities cite. Uh, partly when they're kind of rationalizing what's going on, they say that um, the the virus is in the community, and frankly, it's in the community in much higher numbers than it was in the first wave. But 
you know, that that uh, maritime lockdown that we all looked upon with horror, it's working pretty well. Well, although although the cases are increasing and community spread is is back in many provinces across the country, including uh, in Atlantic Canada, where they have the bubble that was supposed to uh, control that. And the problem is that uh, that although uh, we know more about what's happening and what we might do to control it, uh, the resources and the focus isn't being put on doing that. And uh, it, it's you know, the old saying, what, expecting things to be different uh, when we don't make any when we don't make any changes. And that's what's happening uh, right now. Uh, you know, the whole lack of uh, even and there's no national stand, uh, standards, no accountability. Everything is uh, fragmented, not uh, uh, not focused. Uh, the the situation is getting worse, not better. I, I thought there were just like a very, very tiny number of cases in the Maritimes now. Am I wrong? Well, uh, they're they're tiny comparatively. Uh, but when uh, uh, but, uh, you know, as a percentage of, of population and of growth in terms of uh, community spread, uh, there's uh, where there were none uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're now getting up into the dozens and uh, more coming uh, all the time. And the, the really scary thing is the community spread. That's what was controlled before. The only uh, time we were seeing uh, any kind of infections being passed on was when somebody traveled uh, from, uh, from outside of the bubble, brought it back, and then people close to them uh, uh, got, uh, got COVID. Now uh, we're finding it uh, going, uh, uh, increasing in uh, in clubs, in bars, in grocery stores, in 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 pet stores, in uh, in restaurants, uh, and that wasn't happening before. So there's a real fear among uh, people in in especially in the long term care area in uh, uh, in Atlantic Canada. And now that the uh, uh, the high dose flu vaccine has run out and it's not even available anymore. Uh, people are being uh, extremely uh, worried that we're going to have that uh, twin demic that we were uh, talking about four or five months ago. Okay, well, on the subject of that, uh, people, uh, you know, take whatever vaccine is available. Don't not right. get a vaccine because the high dose isn't available. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing this community spread. And uh, it, it's really alarming. Peter, uh, I mean, in terms of long-term care, how do you see things? Well, we, we have a friend who is a PSW at a big Toronto uh, long-term care home, and um, she got it. And um, so she was out for two weeks, and, you know, a, a number of other staff uh, along with her got it. So that home, which already had a staffing problem is now you know completely undermanned because uh a, a number of frontline workers have gone down with with covid and like in two weeks they'll be back but but that two weeks how are they going to cope you know and and i'm sure that situation is repeating itself across the province you know right and, and yeah. remember people are being told that if you even if you have a sniffle or a headache or anything don't go to work, right? And 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 which is probably a good thing, but it also takes a, a, a very important worker out of the front line and uh, with no replacement. 
Yeah, well, Peter it, is right. And what we're also hearing is that uh, uh, they don't have the PPE that they want to have and expected to have and that was was promised. So we hear the government trumpeting uh, about all the extra PPE that's available, but then we're hearing directly from long-term care workers that they're they're limited to one N95 mask a day. They have to take that mask off uh, four or five times a day, naturally, as they have their breaks and, and have other reasons they have to take the mask off. So they're uh, touching it every time they take it off. They're at risk of spreading even uh, even further. So that the claim that there's now enough uh, PPE is not holding true. And the 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 uh, increase in uh, incidences of COVID being in the long-term care facilities uh, really seems to bear that out. The protection is not there uh, for the workers. And if it's not there for the workers, it's it certainly isn't there for the residents. Okay, uh, you know, um, you mentioned a national standard. Last week, uh, Premier Ford of Ontario uh, delivered, I've, I heard it as a warning to the Prime Minister, basically said, stay in your lane or there will be trouble, which means don't encroach on any kind of provincial jurisdiction, which is health, And uh, but you can send money. Money would be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Money's always good. And you send know, it quicker fun. than you've been sending it. <laughs> so. yeah. Unfortunately, what we've found through this whole uh, process is that politics will not solve the issues of COVID. It's got to be medical decisions that are based on the data and the facts that we have. And what we're finding more and more in Ontario and across the country is that politicians are are not following the the medical advice. They're making decisions based on uh, other criteria, other opinions, and and sometimes a question of exactly what they're uh, basing it on. And we have... If we had followed the good advice of the healthcare experts right from the beginning, we wouldn't be in the place uh, we are today. Right, right. That's um, that's so. That's not not necessarily comforting. So, where do we go from here, David? Well, I think one of the things we have to get really clear in in looking at the long-term care homes, particularly in the Ministry of Long-Term Care. And one of the reasons CARP is so furious and so many of our respondents are so furious is Ontario is the only province that has a Ministry of Long-Term Care. So your first response would say, well, that's pretty innovative. They set that up in 2003, around the time of SARS. Somebody recognized that long-term care was a big enough component of the health care system to warrant its own... um, you know, bureaucracy, if you will, and they spun it off as a completely separate ministry uh, a little over a year ago. And I think Marilee Fullerton was the first you know, minister only with that portfolio. So you got one job. We're not blaming them for why did COVID exist. We're not blaming them for should you wear masks or not, should you close restaurants and gyms or not, um, where's the vaccine coming from, what's the latest medical read. That's all somewhere else. All we're saying is you had one thing to worry about, 600 and some odd buildings under your watch. You had a lull in the uh, case rate and the fatality rate as the first wave faded. You had a shocking example of what can happen when things go wrong. You had all these months to worry about your one responsibility. 
And here we are. And that's why everybody said, well, I don't blame Marilyn Fullerton or Doug Ford or the ministries. There's a host of issues relating to COVID that has nothing to do with them that they cannot be held accountable for. But it's reasonable to hold them accountable for the one topic that should have been their concern all along and that they've been dithering around with. And I think that's why there's so much... uh, uh, anger at the at the mismanagement of this. Yeah, and why but the, we want I, to keep the pressure on them. I, I I the question I have is, you know, how much agency did they even have in this? Right? I mean, how much authority did they even have and and you know, as since everything comes down to money, how much money did they have to fix things with? Right? Mm-hmm. So that's 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 my question. I mean, well, well we don't even part, know if they had any authority to do anything. Part, part of it is la- lack of, of systems that are, that are working. The Canadian Medical Association said very clearly that if governments protected frontline workers and protected the residents, therefore, from frontline workers bringing the COVID into the, the residents, that would go a tremendous uh, way in, in, in terms of stopping COVID. And we were told that the PPE uh, was there to protect uh, frontline workers, the testing was there uh, to, uh, to do it, but it but it wasn't done. They didn't they didn't follow through, and now that's what that's what we're seeing. Now we're having uh, the medical experts across the country talk about a new thing, which is a, a circuit breaker. In other words, uh, uh, to uh, set a time, whether it's two weeks or four weeks, and say we're going to shut down everything in our province for this amount of time. And just and just do it uh, that way. Uh, business and others could plan. If you know it's going to be two weeks, you could plan how long you're not going to be doing business and and work with it. But the the, the circuit breaker idea is great, gaining great traction among the the experts recommending, and governments are staying uh, staying away from it uh, politically. At some point. They've got to start listening to the good advice of the people who know what they're talking about. And uh, coming up uh, later in the show, Bill, thanks for uh, helping me with a promo there. Uh, we're going to be talking to experts who actually think a circuit breaker won't be enough. And and they think we have to uh, get very, very serious and very aggressive about this. But people, you have to hang on for that. So they, as we can see, there, there are all these competing ideas of of how to keep things in check. And I'm saying keep things in check. They actually aren't in check. Uh, So the genie is out of the bottle. And what do we have to do to uh, get it to go back in is, uh, is, is very difficult. I mean, uh, Peter, uh, you know, people talk about businesses and the the uh, damage to the economy and uh, the damage to mental health when people are are locked down how do you see that tension well you know um the first lockdown was punishing enough on people and on businesses and um you know everyone was a bit chuffed in the summer to come back to work and you know open up the restaurants and bars and gyms and this second one is is going to have a tremendously negative effect on them. Just when they thought things were turning around and they could open with restrictions, now it looks like more and more uh, that it's going to be full closure coming up. You know, and and it, it it's not only a um, I don't want to say a death blow, but it's it, it's certainly a, a a real hard kick um, financially coming up. 
but also mentally. Like they, these people, their whole lives went into these businesses, and to see them just uh, disappear in front of them, it, it's, it's got to be uh, terrible, you know. Well, uh, David, where, where do residents of long-term care rank uh, compared to, say, uh, business owners? I mean, health professionals who advocate tough measures say, well, the government has to compensate people. But, you know, uh, last week the prime minister said, hey, you know, like this is not an infinite resource. Well, it's true that there's not an infinite resource. And I think that if you want to say that in the larger society, uh, even the shocking death rate among seniors in long-term care homes compared to uh, creating the second uh, Great Depression out of the 1930s, there are going to be certainly uh, very agonizing trade-offs. And it's very, I don't want to sound like somebody who's glib or, you know, about this whole problem. And Peter's right. There's huge issues. All we're saying is in the area in which you profess to be able to do something and you've claimed that you're able to do something and your only focus is as a ministry is on long-term care homes, what are you actually doing? It's quite reasonable to ask for that particular sector uh, to get better performance than it's been getting. It's not reasonable to ask for that sector to solve the entire problem of society, for sure not. But it's very reasonable to say to the extent that that's your topic, what are you doing with it? And right now it's it's just not good enough. Okay, uh, we're basically out of time. Bill and Peter, 20 seconds each, starting with Peter. Well, um, just to end on a hopeful note, the, the second uh, vaccine the Moderna vaccine um, is showing promise in testing. So perhaps, you know, uh, you know, with all the doom and gloom, maybe, maybe, you know, we'll be saved by either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. And we can we can sort our way out of it with through uh, treatment rather than through shutdown. OK, well, a whole bunch of issues surrounding that yeah. as well. Bill Van Gorder, your 20 seconds. I would ask your listeners, if they agree with the concern that we've expressed today, to go to carp.ca, sign the petition, give us your thoughts uh, in in the notes on how you're finding it's going, and let's make sure that we let the government know that we're not happy and something has to be done now. Okay. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, David Kravitz, and Bill Van Gorder. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.